Good evening and welcome to CSIS. I'm Andrew Schwartz here at CSIS. Thank you all for being here. Uh, first, I want to say congratulations to my colleague Heather Conley uh, for today is the release of the Kremlin Playbook 2. We've all been waiting for the sequel and, <laughs> and here it is. Um, you'll see it in the paper in the journal tomorrow morning. It just uh, it came up online uh, this afternoon, but you're going to really get a preview here first. Um, we'd like to thank the Schieffer School um, of Journalism at TCU, the Schieffer College of Communication. Uh, we'd also like to thank the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation for all of their uh, great help in putting this series on for so many years. We couldn't do it without them. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce the greatest name in news, Bob Schieffer. here for the introductions. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best part. Well, thank you all for coming. This is really interesting and, and, and really, I think, a big deal what, what Heather and her team uh, have done. Uh, in 2016, I think your book, The Kremlin Playbook, was the handiest reference source that I could find about anything all that year. And uh, people weren't aware of what was going on, and you really laid out that the Russians uh, don't just drive their tanks across other people's borders anymore. They've become much more sophisticated and very good at what they were doing. And when people would say to me, do you think that the uh, Russians meddled in our election? I, my answer was, well, if you look at the uh, Russian playbook, if they weren't meddling in our elections, it was the only developed country where they weren't meddling, and they still are in an even more uh, sophisticated way. We want to uh, start this off here with just a little, uh, I'll introduce the crowd, uh, the, uh, the group here in just a second, but we want to start with a little video that just sort of lays this out, so. Election meddling, compromat, economic intimidation. Russia's influence in Europe thrives on corruption and exploitation. The Russian companies control directly or indirectly between around 6% and 10% of the economies of free enablers. These enablers are not the direct targets of Russian influence. But the liberal investment markets that exist in these countries attract Russian funds and firms. These countries become inadvertent facilitators of Russia's bidding. Austria's largest banks net large profits from investments in Russian businesses. This makes the government dependent on a good political relationship with Moscow. And in the Netherlands, Russian company assets were just $13 billion in 2007. Today, it is closer to $100 billion. These countries' flexible business laws let companies like Lukoil and Rosneft incorporate and handle a large amount of their international profits. We've had a very complacent attitude to the flood of Russian capital in the past three decades, which has amounted to uh, some more than a trillion. And this trillion uh, has basically freely been allowed to uh, enter the uh, Western banking system. And now this is creating a massive influence operation. Illicit financing can cross many borders, countries, and through many accounts and shell companies. Russia's reach goes beyond the financial and banking sectors and is hard to detect. Russian economic influence tends to concentrate in several key strategic sectors. Energy is probably its most important sector. 
Smaller economies, such as the Czech Republic's, are dependent on Russian energy exports. This dependency gives the Kremlin political leverage. EU countries uh, should reconsider the implementation of Russia-led gas pipelines, such as Nord Stream 2 and Turkish Stream. Nord Stream 2 is controversial as security experts see it as a way for Russia to bypass and isolate Eastern European transit countries. There is a need to realign US and European energy policies through a common understanding of the critical risks and for the development of a common instrument for analyzing energy security. This unvirtuous cycle of Russian influence can be broken. It can be done with better understanding of illicit financial activities and more effective legal measures. And the most powerful tool to break that cycle is transparency. We want to prevent uh, Russia from using our financial systems, our economic systems, to actually erode our democracy. Right, and so that's where we're going to start. <laughs> let, me, uh, let me just give you a, a brief uh, introduction. Full biographies of uh, the panel are in your programs. But Heather, of course, is the uh, Senior Vice President for Europe, Eurasia, and the Arctic, and Director of the Europe Program here at CSIS. Uh, 2001 to 2005, she was Deputy Assistant Secretary of State uh, in the Bureau of uh, European and uh, Eurasian uh, Affairs. Uh, she's a former U.S. Deputy Secretary of State. Uh, uh, she began her career in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs at the uh, U.S. Department of State. She was selected to serve as Special Assistant to the Coordinator of U.S. Assistance uh, to the newly independent states of the former Soviet Union and has received two State Department meritorious awards Next is Juan Zarate. He is chairman, co-founder of the Financial Integrity Network, chairman of the Center for Economic and Financial Power, and senior national security analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. Those are two English language broadcast <laughs> outlets. Sorry about Here. that, <laughs> He is a senior fellow at West Point's Combating Terrorism Center was a visiting lecturer at uh, Harvard Law School for eight years. He's a published author, including his books, Treasury's War. He was the deputy assistant to the president and deputy national security advisor for combating terrorism from 2005 to 2009. And he was responsible for developing and implementing the US government's counterterrorism strategy. Michael Isakoff, uh, who's been around almost as long as me, uh, <laughs> is the uh, chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News, co-author of the recent book, Russian Roulette, The Inside Story of Putin's War on America. Uh, Isakoff has worked at the Washington Post, Newsweek, and NBC News. He's the author of two New York Times uh, bestsellers, and he's a frequent guest on MSNBC and uh, CNN. Heather. Why don't you just start by just giving us an overview of, of what this uh, Kremlin Playbook 2 is about and why you decided you needed another? Well, uh, thank you, Bob. Thank you all so much for joining us. Before I begin, I need to uh, shout out uh, to our research team. I'm sort of the spokesperson uh, for us this afternoon, but I want to introduce and have stand our outstanding research team, uh, particularly from the Center for the Study of Democracy. Let me begin by introducing Ruslan Stefanov, who is the director of the Europe program and the economics program. <laughs> 
Martin Vladimirov, who you saw also as well. He crunched a lot of numbers. Thank you. Uh, Ognin Shentov is the chairman of the Center for the Study of Democracy as well. <laughs> And last but not least, that lovely voice you heard narrating that video is my indispensable research associate, Donna Cien. Would you please stand, Donna Cien? Thank you so much. If analysts have nine lives like cats, we chewed through quite a few of them with this analysis over the last year and a half. So why did we do a second report? Because it's Bob Schieffer's favorite report, so we wanted to do a second one. That was part of it, no. Um, I think we were shocked in, in many ways. Uh, we knew, I remember telling uh, Dr. Hamry, the president and CEO of CSIS, I told him that report would be the most important work I would do that year at CSIS. I didn't know it would be probably the most important work CSIS would do in, in that year. There was a real hunger to understand what was happening and Europe has been a laboratory for this for 20 years. I've just had a front row seat at watching how Russian malign influence works. So this real hunger really drove us from members of Congress, the administration, to the public to say, we need to understand how this works. And we wanted to develop a body of research. We take a case study approach. We go inside a country. We try to figure out what is happening. It's very labor intensive, and, and my colleagues have spent countless of hundreds of hours of research to try to understand what's going on. But really why we did the second report is that we detected some patterns in that first report. Certain names of countries, certain subsidiaries, certain banks, certain political leaders kept reappearing in our original five case study countries. Very different countries from Latvia to Bulgaria to Hungary to Serbia. They didn't necessarily have a rhyme or reason, but we kept seeing the same types of companies and countries. Was this an a coincidence, or were we seeing the amplification of Russian influence? And so that's what we wanted to study. So we took a look at six countries. We put them into two baskets. The first basket, we looked at Austria, Italy, and the Netherlands. We term those enablers, and I'll talk a little bit about why we think they facilitate Russian malign influence. And then there was a second group of countries, the Czech Republic, Romania, and Montenegro. They are very similar to what we did in the first Kremlin playbook, but what we've seen is an adaptation of Russian tactics. Sometimes we think they remain static, and we're fighting the last fight. No, my friends, there's been a lot of adaptation and evolution in those tactics. And so we looked at how they went. So what I'm about to do in about two minutes is summarize about 120 pages worth of report. What we've released online is our executive summary, because you probably don't want to wade through 120 pages of this. But the full online report will be available at the end of the month for those of you who are very excited about wading through about 120 pages. So if you think that all we need to do is toughen our rhetoric and sanction a few oligarchs, our report discounts that theory immediately. This is a story, of, it's a very complex story that goes back decades. It's a story of sanctions loopholes, shell ownership, letterbox companies, tax avoidance schemes, the commingling of business and political interest, 
corporate service providers. It's a story that concentrates, as the video suggested, in energy and in banking and in real estate. It's about the use and the direction of approximately $1 trillion of Russian private holdings that are held abroad. Um, I think it was the EU that estimated that between 2 to 5% of global GDP today is caught up in money laundering and illicit financing. So we're talking about very big sums of money. So what we really drew and what we want to draw your attention to, and I hope we talk a little bit more in the panel discussion, is really a conversation about rethinking Russian economic influence. Because typically, we looked at this, and in the first report, we calculated it through corporate presence, direct investment, trade relationships, private ownership and investment. And what we've seen now is a very different picture. We have to calculate Russian economic influence by financial flows, both inbound and outbound foreign direct investment stocks, and the amount of exposure that European businesses have in the Russian market itself. And of course, again, that concentration. We see energy as really the most effective uh, source of leverage uh, for Russian economic influence, but we're now seeing a great growth in financial institutions, in banks, telecommunications, and in particular, real estate. But it's not just the new direction of economic flows. It's creating an ecosystem of enabling. And let me explain this a little bit. And because CSIS is a, more of a security and defense institution, I'm gonna put this in military terms. We are seeing a new battle space shaped in the financial system, a financial gray zone. And, and we're seeing where Russian economic behavior is designed just below the threshold of illegality. So it's designed to stay hidden. And so what we're seeing in this ecosystem are enabling countries that are helping grow this economic system. So I'm about to give you a couple of things that if, if you find these similarities, you're, you're an enabler. I almost feel like I'm, I'm Jeff Foxworthy and you're a red man. You know you're an enabler when. So I'm about to do a little, you know you're an enabler when. <laughs> If you typically have laws that enshrine flexible double taxation or very generous tax withholding laws, you probably are an enabling country. If you have deep networks in many other countries, particularly in Central Europe and the Western Balkans, where Russia uses uh, through a lot of subsidiaries and indirect corporate footprint, you probably are an enabler. If your country has very close relationships between large national champions like energy companies and banks, and you're very close to political leaders, we call that corporatism, you're very likely an enabler. If your country has a growing corporate service provider of tax attorneys, accountants, and lawyers that provide incorporation and offshore financial services, and your country protects that growing industry despite the fact that your economy does not really benefit from it, you are likely an enabler. <laughs> uh, and, and this is particularly true actually for the Netherlands. This is a statistic. The Netherlands has about the same size of a corporate service provider industry as Japan does and Japan is six times an economy larger than the Netherlands. It represents up to $4.5 trillion. If your large and growing corporate service providers excel at using trusts, preferential tax treaties, letterbox companies, special purpose vehicles, 
shell companies transfer pricing or mispricing or profit round tripping, and these are terms I didn't know very much about, but I'm learning a lot about them, <laughs> you are likely an enabler. If you have very large banks which are heavily invested in Russia, but smaller boutique banks that are usually more conduits for Russia's funds, you are very likely an enabler. And if your export credit agencies are really exposed to your investments in Russia, you again are likely an enabler. So that's a profile of what enabling country looks like. And our enablers, Russia is Austria's second largest investor in Russia, and Russian investments have increased, increased since the annexation of Crimea in 2014. And this has been the, the trick. We thought we'd see a decrease in financial flows since sanctions were imposed since 2014. No, we saw an increase in financial flows and FDI stocks. Italy is Russia's third largest commercial partner, and exports to Russia have grown, as has Italian outward FDI stocks have grown. Unicredit is the largest foreign bank in Russia by volume of activity. The Netherlands is the, Russia's second largest trading partner and its second largest investment market for Russia. And, and the Netherlands is also the largest tax treaty jurisdiction in the world. So again, these enabling forces allow Russian malign influence to work very, very quickly and well. And then finally, there's other three countries, the Czech Republic, Romania, and Montenegro, those enablers. Well, um, the adaptation has been very interesting. We're seeing a concentration of Russian economic activity in local areas. This is true in the enablers. We see a concentration of Russian real estate purchases in northern Italy, but in Montenegro, it's extremely high. Tourism, real estate purchases, hotels, that actually adds an enormous amount of pressure to the local tax base and the company and the country itself. Energy continues to be a very big uh, source of that, but downstream. Uh, so we saw a lot of aluminum purchases. Mr. Deripaska's name appeared very frequently in our analysis of, of Montenegro. So this is a long way of saying, how do we combat this? Two words, transparency and accountability. As my colleague Suzanne Spalding likes to say here, we must fight in the light because Russian malign tactics work in darkness, in shadows, they are hidden. So if this is a battle space, we better armor up and get into the battle space. What we propose is a financial intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance financial picture. So we not just see the national picture, but see how these opaque, opaque very complex financial transactions are developed. We need legislation in the United States and in the European Union to increase transparency on beneficial ownership. Corporate service providers is a weapon that needs to be brought into the light. These are perfectly, I'm sure, legitimate providers, but perhaps they don't understand where they fit into this picture. We have a lot of work to do, and uh, we hope the Criminal Playbook 2 provides a lot of insights into how this malign influence works, some recommendations to fight in the light, and that's where democracies win. I'm sorry I went on too long, but thank you no, so much. Uh, so, one, what is illicit financing? That's the term that we well, it's a, it's a great question, Bob. For, first of all, thank you, and Heather, congratulations on this really important work. Everything you've said, by the way, you sound like an anti-money laundering expert. I'm, um, I'm growing into one. Because <laughs> those of us in this world, I see lots of friends in the audience who've been at the Treasury Department working on anti-money laundering issues and illicit financing concerns, have been in some ways uh, sounding the warning bells on this for some time. 
the, the core elements, Bob, of the anti-money laundering system are transparency, accountability, and traceability. Do we know who owns assets, how money is uh, created, how it moves, into whose hands it, it operates? And the whole point of the anti-money laundering system is to have as much transparency and accountability uh, in that regard. And so to answer your question, illicit finance is the proceeds of illicit activity, criminal activity. What's interesting, Bob, in the national security context is that post 9-11, what we did in the United States government, but what's happened internationally, is you've had a bit of a dovetail between what had previously just been a law enforcement concern, you know, who's the criminal trying to launder their funds through banks around the world, and that has dovetailed with the national security concerns, starting first with terrorist financing. How do we know who is supporting terrorist groups? How do they uh, raise money, move money? How do you disrupt that, right? That was a core part of our post 9-11 strategy. Then we moved to proliferation finance. Then we deepened the anti-money laundering system, trying to uh, expand that internationally. Now what you have are sanctions and anti-money laundering rules that are applied to not just the issues that uh, Heather's raised, but questions of human rights violations, broad corruption, even cyber activity. And the interesting part here, tied to the Russia problem, is you see the sanctions, you see the anti-money laundering concerns, all tied to Russian nefarious activity, which has at some point a link to their financial interests and their desire to raise capital, move capital, and to have access. And the point of our strategy post 9-11 had always been, how do you use US and international financial and economic tools to unplug rogue actors from the financial system? How do you disallow their ability to access the, the resources and the facilities and the enablers that they need to actually operate and to give strategic life to their vision? Um, and so it's a long-winded answer to your question of illicit finance, but it raises the question of, whether or not we're in a new period where these anti-money laundering issues, which were, again, once thought of as just these interesting law enforcement tools, whether or not in the context of what Russia's done to employ hybrid warfare to try to use economic tools as tools of influence, whether or not we're now in a new stage where these are now central concerns to national security. I've been arguing for a long time that that's the case. If anyone bothered to read my book, chapter 16 talks about the coming financial wars. And a lot of uh, what we're talking about here, I think, is, is, is what we're facing, which is a Russia willing to use its economic tools and financial tools as part of asymmetric warfare. And the question is, can we defend ourselves in that domain? And can we be smart enough to use our tools in concert with European allies and others to actually counter Russian influence in this domain? That is yet to be determined, and I think we're just in the beginning stages. And because this is all, uh, using this, this is all part of a broader piece, with the Russians are also looking at ways to undermine institutions in these countries, that they raise questions about the media, uh, the credibility, the, the church, all of these things. And we, we see all of this coming together here. Uh, Absolutely right. It, it's the use of cyber tools, use of information warfare, use of financial and economic influence, uh, use of uh, unconventional or irregular forces, all to, to shape the environment in a way that is part of a long-term strategy. And I think one of the challenges that we have in terms of how we use sanctions traditionally, 
uh, and how we have thought about the anti-money laundering tools, we haven't thought about them as asymmetric tools of warfare. Right? The Russians do think of it that way. We don't. Right? We think of them as international norms and principles and programs. The question is, should we be adapting our tools to an environment where the Russians are playing uh, a losing hand more smartly than we are, and where we frankly ha still have the asymmetric uh, advantage, but we haven't quite figured out how to use that advantage? Michael, do you think uh, that once the Mueller report comes out, we'll see any reference to this sort of activity? <laughs> well, sort of uh, In uh, the, uh, the guessing game on the Mueller report, when and what, uh, is, uh, is pretty rampant in Washington right now. And, um, you know, uh, we have all been um, uh, expecting uh, something soon, but what it is and what we'll see, uh, you know, we could be fighting over for the rest of the year. Uh, I mean, um, uh, this week could be, uh, you know, I don't want to get out on a limb here, but we've got the uh, Manafort final sentencing on Wednesday from Judge Jackson. And uh, that, um, uh, you know, everybody expects that uh, she will be a lot tougher than Judge Ellis was and could bring down the hammer on him. And that will be the end of the Manafort case, which actually was the major Mueller case um, uh, in the, uh, uh, against a U.S. person. Uh, um, you know, there were two indictments, uh, a major trial, um, lots of evidence got put onto the public record that speaks to many of the issues that um, Heather was uh, laying out. Uh, and then um, the next day on Thursday, there'll be a, um, uh, a hearing a status on um, a St Roger Stone's uh, situation. So we could learn a lot more this week. And then, you know, will we actually see um, a report soon? Um, you know, the expectation is that um, we will get um, uh, an announcement from the Attorney General that a report has been provided to him, which is what the regulations call for, and then what he does with it, how much of it he shares with the public, that's the uh, $64 million question right now. But you know, I do want to say that um, regardless of how that plays out um, and what he ultimately says or doesn't say about the president uh, himself, um, you know, there have been some pretty significant byproducts of the Mueller investigation that I think speak to a lot of the issues that um, the Kremlin playbook does. Uh, and um, uh, I think they probably haven't gotten as much attention as they should. Start with the enforcement of the Foreign Agents Registration Act something which was incredibly lax over the years. You know, the law goes back to uh, the Nazi era of 1930s, trying to expose Nazi propaganda in the United States, almost never criminally enforced by the Justice Department. And as a result of the Mueller investigation, you know, coming, uh, bringing down the hammer on Paul Manafort and what he was doing uh, using this sort of phony um, uh, nonprofit in Brussels to uh, hire uh, uh, major uh, lobbying firms in the United States, the Podesta Group, the Mercury Group, um, I, 
was um, that that's what they got. That's one of the things that Manafort um, was uh, convicted for, pled guilty to in the Washington case. Uh, and you know, his lawyers have made the argument that well, this is unfair because this law is so rarely enforced. And I think what Mueller has done is um, said no, not anymore. And he's farmed out. You know, uh, 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 outgrowths of this to the Southern District. You're going. You're starting to see a lot stricter enforcement of FARA, and that is a good thing for transparency. It's a major blow. Um, attribution on cyber attacks, mm -hmm. something we almost never saw prior to the 2016 election. Um, uh, you know, there were a few cases in North Korea and um, uh, China, with o, yeah, China with OPM, but rarely done, uh, the, you know, the default position of the FBI and the national security community is, we don't want to call these countries out. Uh, this is too complicated. Um, you know, it has you know, foreign policy implications. And as a result, uh, foreign nation state actors were um, you know, taking advantage of our uh, cyber, uh, lack of cyber security to do major damage here in the United States and very little was said publicly about it. Companies did not want to admit they had been uh, hacked, so they, they stayed silent. The government didn't say anything. You're starting to see a change in that. You're starting to see more aggressive enforcement with indictments by the Justice Department of foreign uh, cyber uh, actors, nation state actors. We've seen that in, in China now. We saw it uh, in, um, uh, with uh, indictments of Russian state-sponsored hackers in the company I work for, Yahoo, that was a major ind uh, indictment. So, you know, there are um, uh, signs that, you know, we're moving in the right direction. Uh, but I totally agree with Heather. We have lots more to go. Um, you know, when you were uh, mentioning, you know, what's the criteria for uh, are you an enabler, I was thinking of the state of Delaware, <laughs> you know, which uh, I think would qualify under many of the criteria you just mentioned. I don't know how many of you tried to penetrate LLCs formed in the state of Delaware. And of course, a very uh, key part of that is the dark money phenomenon in the United States in political campaigns. You know, ever since uh, Citizens United ruling, you know, the uh, growth of the, the, uh, the spurt of, of 501c4s uh, into the political arena is an open door for all sorts of malign actors uh, to inject uh, money into our political system, and you know we don't hear a lot being talked about about um, uh, putting uh, some real transparency and sunlight on that. Bob, can I just comment sure. on this because I, I think this is a great example of the overlap between these national security issues, political issues, and the money laundering world. For years, there has been debate about how do you apply ultimate beneficial ownership rules in the U.S. internationally. Now that sounds very technical, but the, the, the fundamental question is how do you know the natural person behind the assets and the investments, right? And when you talk about dark money, that's a critical question. When you talk about are there front companies investing or owning key technologies, you look at the Chinese, that's an important question. Where are the Russians hiding their money or Venezuelan regime hiding their money? Ultimate beneficial ownership's important. And so uh, folks like Chip Ponce, who's a partner of mine has been a, an evangelist for this for years, saying, look, this is critical systemically. 
And I think we're now starting to see why it matters so much from a national security perspective. These arcane sort of anti-money laundering rules are meeting these very fundamental national security concerns, which is why I think we're at a different period of both awareness and why this report is so important. Heather, how do our European allies view this? Is, are they, they view it as seriously as, as you do? So um, the good news, since the first Kremlin playbook, we have seen progress both in the U.S. and the EU. The EU has just passed its fifth uh, anti-money laundering directive. But, you know, the, the challenge is we are pointing fingers at each other rather than working together. So uh, last week, the, EU, uh, the European Commission had put four U.S. Uh, territories on a list sort of for... Uh, blacklisting them, naming and shaming them for not having that transparency on, on money laundering. Uh, the Treasury Department statement in response to that was probably the most emotive statement I think I have ever read uh, from the Treasury Department saying absolutely not. I think they listed, help me one, uh, Puerto Rico, uh, the American, American Virgin Samoa, Islands, American Virgin Islands, Guam, and yeah. American Samoa. So I feel like, you know, the Kremlin playbook, it, because we're looking at Europe, we're also pointing out a lot of deficiencies. It's sort of the biblical, take the beam out of your eye before you pick out the, the splinter in your neighbor's eye. We have to look at this ourselves. And exactly right, uh, the comments I'm making on the Netherlands should be said about Delaware, Nevada. We have a problem. This is our problem. This is our house to clean up. And what happens is we, I think we blame each other and say, you really have a problem. You really need to do something about it, not looking at this together. And because this, we have to create this common operating picture because what can begin in Europe, this is sort of the, uh, the, the Manafort indictment sheet from what we know, mm -hmm. it can work in the US and then it can turn around and go back and work into Europe. And this is our system together. Russia does not create this. They simply exploit the weaknesses that are presented, and this has been our weakness. We have beautiful laws and rules, but we don't implement them. We don't use examples like FARA mm -hmm. that says we have got to do this. And if you're uh, an adversary and you're trying to erode credibility in institutions, well, we're just continuing to give them opportunities by not increasing beneficial ownership by not increasing the transparency. For the first time, I hope Congress understands this is not in the nice to do category, this is in the national security category. And I think we missed the opportunity in 2016 and saying, look, after 9-11, and Juan, you were in the middle of this, we changed our architecture, we created fusion cells, we highlighted this. Yeah. You don't see that imperative at all. If anything, we're pointing to it, we ad we're admiring this problem. But I don't get the sense of urgency that we want to fix this problem. I, I, I have a, a slightly different opinion. I think you're right. I think we do this in pieces and parts. And, and one of the things that you've recommended, which I think CSIS does better than any, anybody else in town, is the exposure and the mapping. You've seen this in the South China Sea context. You've seen it in the North Korean you know, uh, missile sites. You know, th those are images and analysis coming out of CSIS. I think sort of a mapping function here as to not where they're missile sites, but where is economic influence, where are the key nodes of Russian influence uh, and coercion is critical. So I completely agree with you. Where I, I push back a little bit, and you see this in the Treasury statement uh, to the EU listing, and, and this is the listing as well that listed Saudi Arabia and other countries that were very upset about being listed by the European Union was, first of all, telling U.S. Uh, banks, you don't have to listen to this list, which is a pretty aggressive approach, right? 
And secondly, a question of what is the methodology around sort of understanding this? There is already an international process under the Financial Action Task Force, which is the, the standard setting body around the world that has a, a black list, a gray list, et cetera. But I think that the challenge here in the transatlantic divide is you do have the finger pointing. You also have concerns that the US has grown too aggressive at times with the use of some of these tools, right? So we sanction too much. Uh, we have uh, used anti-money laundering uh, rules and fines against major European banks to the tune of billions of dollars. And so you do get this question of, okay, what are we doing about Russian influence? But we also get European complaints about the U.S. is being hyper-aggressive with the use of these tools. And so I agree with you, we have to have a transatlantic understanding of how we're going to understand the threat, how we're going to use these tools. And I think the difference here is how do we do it for the long term? Because the Europeans have always thought the sanctions will be unwound at a certain point. This is tied to Crimea. Or how, you know, how do we stop doing this sanction or this rule? We're in this for the long term. The Russians are investing in this illicit economy, this illicit asymmetric tool. We're not geared, whether it's in the US or in Europe or combined, to actually deal with it. And I think that's a real challenge, in particular in the European context where they haven't enforced these rules and in the U.S. context where we've done it in pieces and parts. Michael, uh, go ahead. Well, I, I just wanted to uh, just underscore the point I was making before about our campaign finance laws, because it, it did remind me of the discussion of a story I did back during the 2012 election, um, when I found uh, 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 there was a big super PAC for, that was supporting Mitt Romney's campaign, and uh, there was a million dollar donation from uh, an LLC to the super PAC. Uh, publicly disclosed, but who's the LLC? Who is that? You know, it was a Delaware registered corporation, and um, I um, uh, got the records, what records you could get from Delaware, and it showed that uh, the LLC had been created something like four days before the donation, and then dissolved the week after the donation. So it was clearly set up for the sole purpose of funneling dark money into uh, the candidate to help support the candidacy of Mitt Romney. Now, my story helped did create some uh, 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 public uh, momentum uh, for this to be publicly disclosed. And sure enough, the donor finally stepped forward. He was some. Uh, Bain Capital partner of, uh, of, of Mitt Romney. Um, um, so that, that part you know, did correct itself, but you know, the fact is that LLC money, um, uh, fearing public disclosure from you know, pesky journalists like me, now just simply goes into dark money 501c4s, um, where we never see who the donors are, and um, so if the if the if one of the concerns here clearly is is political manipulation, um, uh, then you know that is something that really has to be, you know, seriously addressed as part of the agenda well, to fight the kind yeah, of things uh, we're talking about. The fact is, we no longer have campaign finance laws for all the practical purposes. Yeah, none that make uh, any sense, anyway. Yeah. You know, well, in 1975 after Watergate, 32 people paid heavy fines or went to prison for campaign finance law violations. Today, every single thing they went to prison for is legal. We're not going forward, we're going backwards in trying to police this. And 
Let me tell you something. The hardest thing in the world as a journalist is to get people interested in campaign finance law. <laughs> it's like James Reston once said that the American people will do anything about South America but read about it. Well, well uh, campaign finance law is the, violation... the same way because people think they have nothing to do with right. them. They think right. they have to do with politics. And, but of course, they have everything to do with that. Well, but when the but violation goes are. to paying hush money to porn stars, you know, the public interest does uh, rise with that. Yeah. So, uh, so let yeah. me ask you, uh, yeah. uh, we want to go and get some questions from the audience here in a minute, but uh, do sanctions still work, Heather? So I think they're, they're diminishing in their power. I think they make us feel better that we're doing something. But as our report uncovered, the, the tactics evolve. Uh, it, it, it means less. Particularly, we are sanctioning more, but financial flows are increasing. We're, we're doing something that's, that's not correct. And it's something that absolutely uh, Juan said. We aren't being smart about how to target these sanctions and getting at some of these, these, these blind spots, if you will. I've suggested if we would just add transparency into the system that we describe, we'd have more impact than any sanction that we can do. But let's be clear, it's going to be a little painful to change how our uh, economies work and how, I mean, Delaware uh, receives an enormous amount of income from incorporation. That hurts. But here's the thing. This, there's going to sa be sacrifice for this, or this is going to keep continuing, and our democracy is going to be uh, eroded, and we're going to be helping them finance the way they erode our own democracy. But so you, we, have to, we have to think smartly about how to do this. You see this as a threat to our national security. Absolutely. Absolutely, this is, this is how the new system is working. And this is my frustration, we're not elevating this threat. This is being weaponized, this is being used, and we're helping. We are helping. We are, in fact, in some countries and economies, we're encouraging this to take place because banks aren't getting a lot of money because of low interest rates. There's a network to protect that. That's, that's the challenge, so, but it's gonna hurt us. But it, the only way, it's sort of like um, how you treat cancer. That chemotherapy is really hard. It weakens you initially, but it makes you stronger. And that's what I think we have to think about. This is repairing our own institutions, transparency, fighting this inside, and then we're stronger to, to attack it. Okay, so we're gonna take questions from the audience, but before we do, Heather, yeah. sum up the recommendations. What <laughs> do you think we need to do here? So it is, focusing on transparency and accountability. The EU and the US need to do a whole lot more in beneficial ownership. We have to find a definition of corporate service providers that are more transparent. We have to work together, particularly with the EU, to focus on that common operating picture. So we're detecting this together and we're stopping it together. Um, but we're going to have to change how our systems uh, work and think of this as a battle space, a financial gray zone, and we're going to have to attack it because it's attacking us right now. All right, from the audience. Right here, front row. I would argue that. Tell us who you are. Michael Greenwald, uh, former Treasury Department. At the time of the height of Ukraine-Russia, the United States could have decimated the Russian economy, but chose a more scalpel-like approach. Yes, there's been evasion since. One, what do you see as how much the United States can leverage the U.S. dollar moving forward? What is that scalpel? 
and given the amount of exposure to dollars, um, how that can be leveraged going forward? Michael, it's a great question, and thanks for your service at the Treasury Department. Um, you're right, there's been an evolution of how we've thought about the use of, of uh, sanctions against Russia. Keep in mind, Russia is not Iran and North Korea, right? This is a major G20 economy, major dependencies in Europe. So initially, the sanctions with respect to Russia were designed in a way not to have major implications to the European economy, even to US interests. It goes a little bit to Heather's point about the, the pain in, induced by applying aggressive tools. Um, but it's been, it, it was an aggressive and uh, innovative period uh, in some ways because it went after particular sectors, particular debt and equity. And I, I disagree with Heather in this, in this respect. I think the sanctions can be and have proven to be effective when applied with a strategy and with other tools. They can't just be seen as an on-off switch to be kind of listed and then left alone. Right? I've often said, uh, especially in the context of other types of sanctions, you have to tend the garden because the target will evolve. There's sanctions evasion. You have to use other tools besides classic sanctions like anti-money laundering rules and principles. And so I think what's happened with the Russian program is we've recognized that they, they're in, involved in all sorts of things, all the cyber manipulation, the, the poisoning in London, uh, support to Assad. Even just today, the Treasury announced the designation of a Russian bank that's been involved with PDVSA offering uh, debt and equity to the Venezuelan government. There's overlap in some of these programs. And so I think this program has evolved over time. And what we haven't realized is, A, this is a long-term effort. B, it's asymmetric in its design. And C, to your point about the use of the dollar in the American economy, and even the euro to a certain extent, we have uh, escalatory dominance in this space, and the Russians realize it. And you remember this, when the US Congress was threatening Russian banks with being de-swifted, taken off the international bank messaging system, at the highest levels of the Russian government, they said twice, if you do that, we will consider it an act of war. Why? Because they understood the importance of that system to their economy, to do the kinds of things that Heather has laid out, and they also understand that we re retain escalatory dominance in this space. What we haven't done is to push the envelope as to what that means. Um, final point on this, this comes at a time when there are complaints about the US weaponizing the dollar, right? Jack Lew, the former Treasury Secretary, has warned about overusing sanctions, thinking about the dollar too much as a, a weapon of statecraft. We're caught in a little bit of a pickle here because we do need to use our economic influence and power. We do need to use our suasion and our transparency and our laws to, to affect what the Russians are trying to do. So it's a very delicate balance because we do need to use that authority, that escalatory dominance, but we have to do it in a way where we don't tip the, uh, the balance in a way that you have uh, negative externalities in reaction to U.S. tools. Okay, next. How about back here? The lady. Dr. Elaine Sereo, Associate Rector of UACU in Kiev, Ukraine. Um, thank you very much for the presentation. It's been illuminating. I would like to ask, uh, given the weaponization of the lack of transparency and accountability, how do you see the last two years of what's taken place in Congress fostering that actually uh, within the, this, the position within the United States and actually making the situation possibly worse. Thank you. 
So I actually, um, I've been hopeful. Uh, this, the Senate last year did a series of hearings. It was a joint effort between the Senate Banking Committee, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. They were trying to get at this, are these sanctions working? Um, and trying to think about how to build in that transparency and accountability. I, I just think um, the challenge that we're seeing is there's uh, an enormous agenda and a press of business and things that should be getting done are not getting done. There's an impetus there. A lot of us have testified. Um, we have to change laws and so Congress has a huge role to play in that. But it's the executive branch that has to implement those laws and that transparency and that sanctions and even down to the state level. This is hard, hard work. People have been trying to get this legislation passed for two decades and can't. So I think Congress is, is doing a, a good job. We need to do more and they have to press the executive branch, I believe, to, to do more well, structural changes. Heather, what is the executive branch doing on this? So um, I think the individual departments are doing everything that they can within their authorities to try to meet this challenge. The problem is that there, and you've heard this from many, many uh, experts, there is not a whole of government, White House prioritized and focused way of going after this. If we view this as a 9-11, as an attack against our democracy that comes through different ways, you would have seen the full force of the United States government reauthorizing, reorganizing, restructuring, focusing on this. You don't see that. You see departments and intelligence community doing what they can do with under their, their limited authority, and that's the best we've got. Well, isn't that because the head of the executive branch has been under investigation for his ties to Russia and uh, has fought back and called the whole thing a witch hunt? I think hunt? There's, a, there's multiple Russia policies in the U.S. government. Yeah. This is also the challenge. Right. Congress has one policy. I think the intelligence, defense, and national security community has a policy. I think the White House has its own policy. Mike, uh, I'm going to ask you. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll be in the audience now and ask you a question. <laughs> we talk about transparency and so forth. A lot of this falls to journalism, it seems yeah. to me, and to investigative reporters. Uh, how hard is it to do this story? Um, it's pretty hard uh, because, I mean, the, the core question, uh, and this is something I faced from the beginning in, in starting, you know, during my coverage in the 2016 campaign of the, what the Russians were up to is, um, is credibility of sources. I mean, look at the dispute just playing out over the last you know, few weeks about the, uh, uh, Michael Cohen's testimony, uh, in which you know, certainly um, what he had to say about the Trump Tower Moscow project um, you know, was one of the more significant things we learned um, from Mueller's investigation, and Cohen finally, he pled guilty to lying about it to Congress the first time, then he reappears and gives new testimony and gives new accounts um, uh, that contradict what the president and uh, you know has said and continues to say, and they're going to bring as a you know a, another key witness. Uh, 
in a couple of weeks to testify. That's Felix Sater. So just like think about that, you know, trying to judge the credibility of this trio of witnesses to this one central project to the Mueller investigation. Michael Cohen, convicted felon, um, Felix Sater, convicted felon, and Donald Trump. Who do you believe out of all that in their accounts? Uh, it's pretty tough to uh, uh, figure out. And you know, obviously what the documentation is, is, is going to be key. But that's, you know, that's been a problem um, from the get-go of talking to sources who you have a real hard time uh, uh, trusting uh, that they're giving you accurate accounts. I, All right. I will tell you, Bob, just to, to um, yeah. investigative journalism is absolutely key to the transparency and the accountability. The Panama Papers was through a group uh, of, of journalists. Uh, we held our first workshop uh, in Prague working on this report with our uh, experts. And just as a, a reminder, that day, a young Slovak investigative journalist, uh, Jan Kusiak, was murdered because he was uncovering uh, linkages with organized crime in, in, in Slovakia, um, which and the government was forced to change over that. Uh, a Maltese investigative journalist has been murdered because he was investigating that corruption. This is deadly business for investigative journalists that are seeking the truth. And this is the only way so much of our report, if it weren't for investigative journalism and Panama Papers and things like that, we would not even understand these connections. It's incredibly important. Okay, next question. Right here. Um, Augustus Salzona, I'm a former financial data analyst, Federal Reserve Board during the golden years of 1980 to 85 under Chairman Volcker. Commercial bank report section. Um, my question is this: is uh, just uh, sort of basically? I mean, at least this sounds like a looking at it in a macro sense a discussion about accounting, uh, real estate, and uh, ultimately what's the world conflict today, at least in the West: uh, accounting, real estate, and religion. Now. While the chattering classes in D.C. and in the media are arguing about the Benjamins and AOC and Omar, et cetera, I'm just thinking, just putting it into maybe a political or world uh, context, isn't it also about kind of like a realignment of the world between the West as either led by Western Europe and or the United States versus Russia? and its allies or developing allies versus China, sort of like a triumvirate, if you want to use a, a triumvirate, if you want to use a uh, um, Roman Empire sort of a reference. And it's, 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 um, it's also about the Chinese Yuan and so rubles. I, I think your question is perfectly placed to understand the difference between democracies and institutions and authoritarians. And this is what, if we leave you with one thing as we, as we close up, Bob, the one thing I, I, I want to leave with, democracies are different. They demand transparency and accountability. They don't always live up to that aspiration or that demand. Authoritarians don't live up to those views, but are very comfortable using our system to put their funds in it. And, and that's, 
there is a contestation. There is an ideological difference here. And in some ways, this illicit question falls right, right into uh, it. Right. Uh, can I ask I could, a question? Hold on, I just because I want to answer what you were saying, because I think you're right. Yeah. And I'm a bit more forgiving of the U.S. government, having served at the Treasury, the right. White House, and the Justice Department. Because I, I think a major challenge for us is exactly what you're describing, what Heather's describing, which is this is a contest of different systems. The way that Russia and China use the global financial and, and capitalist system is frankly different than the way that Western Europe and North America have traditionally viewed and used that system. And so part of the convulsion here is the recognition that Russia and China are using the very implements of investment, of global capitalist system, of state-owned enterprises to, to not only further their national security interests, but to undermine U.S. interests. That's a very hard thing for the U.S. government to, to, to grapple with, in part because you've got to have the common operating picture, but you also have to have a different model as to how we interact with our private sector, how we think about investment. This, this goes right to the heart of many of the debates that we're in the middle of. And in, in some ways, we're about 15 years late on this because Russia and China have been marching forward with their model. What we're faced with is a Russia and China that are now extending their influence globally, and we haven't quite figured out how to put our own house in order. Okay. All right. Your question. Uh, yeah, the question is, and, and if you can answer this, if you were to send out a, either a tweet or have a private meeting with the president, what would you advise him? <laughs> Mike, would you like that? Yeah, Michael, you're the man. <laughs> I don't give advice to politicians. No. I'm happy to suggest it. One is, let's not alienate our allies when we need them to confront very hard problems and major competitors in China and Russia. So that's one thing. I would applaud them for what they've done to actually expose what China's been doing, right? The whole spectrum of Chinese activity from IP theft to trade imbalances, uh, to cyber activity, you know, we were long overdue for that conversation. The Trump administration has done that. What we haven't done, and this may go to the investigation, may go to mixed motives, we haven't done it in the Russian context. So I would say, let's apply the same energy and focus that we've had on China in the Russian context, because the danger here is not just what Russia and China are doing, but the lessons learned for America's enemies across the board. We've seen this with Iran. No doubt we'll see it with North Korea. We'll see it with other countries that are taking the Kremlin playbook and making it their own playbook. Illicit financing is a national security imperative to protect the country. You have to make it stop. All right. Well, on that, uh, I, the one thing I know how to do is get off on time. And, uh, <laughs> the time has come. So thank you all for coming on behalf of TCU and CSIS and Heather. Thank you all very much. That was good, Heather. Thank you. I know that's good.